Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. And following the reading of Scripture, we'll sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. The Heidelberg Catechism has been taking us through the Apostles' Creed, and after having worked our way through the person and work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, now we're taking it on into the the blessings of the church and what the church has received from God. This last portion, including the, the portion of the Holy Spirit, is, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we did the Holy Spirit and reflected on his person and work. And today pick up the three phrases in this, this, uh, these three questions of the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins. And we'll conclude next time. <clears throat> the two phrases in the Apostles' Creed that caused most people or caused the most trouble for some people uh, are he descended into hell, uh, there are some that really struggle. Some churches take that out of their recitation of the Apostles' Creed. Of course, as we talked about it, it's uh, that Jesus endured the, the pains of hell and his sufferings and death on the cross. But then there's this phrase in this section, uh, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And for Protestants, they tend to choke on that phrase. Um, but we're not confessing that we believe in the Roman Catholic Church, but we're believing in the Holy Catholic Church. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. So it's, there's a, an explanation. The New Testament word for church, the Greek word is ekklesia. It translated assembly, or the thought is it's an assembly or it's an, a gathering. It's really a, a, a combination of two words together that mean called out ones, the church is the gathering of people that God calls out of the world to be his own and sets his love and affection upon them. And he gathers them together so they might worship and follow him. And uh, there's a lot of uh, wonderful descriptions and terminology used of the church in the Bible and in the New Testament. Uh, words like temple, body, a bride, a kingdom, a flock, a family, a covenant body. These and others kind of describe some of the elements of uh, what the church is. Uh, before we get into the content of this question, uh, 
Uh, if you go, if, if you pick up a book on systematic theology, you'll come across a uh, couple descriptions of the church. And I want to give those to you before we move on. And uh, so here I'm preparing you for your theology exam. You need, you'll be asked this question, so you need to know it. The first is the attributes of the church. What are the attributes of the church? Well, the, the four attributes of the church are really coming from the Nicene Creed. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. So one church, it's um, holy, it's Catholic, and it's apostolic. And I'm going to come back to those four thoughts earlier. But there's another description that you need to know about, and that is, what are the marks of the church? We have the attributes of the church. What are the marks of the church? The marks of the church, and these were developed and became very significant in the time of the Reformation. The three marks of the church are the faithful preaching of the word of God, the right administration of the sacraments, and the faithful exercise of discipline. And the reformers uh, developed these and and expounded on these as a way to identify the true church as opposed to a false church. Uh, The true church would have the preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the exercise, the proper exercise of discipline. And um, they use that as a help to them to reflect on what is the church. uh, There's so many other wonderful things we could talk about the church, its purpose, its future. Uh, There are some wonderful books on the the church, but we're going to stay fairly focused on these three questions as we think about that. And as you uh, look at verse uh, question 54, I'll go ahead and read the answer for you one more time. Uh, What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? That the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his spirit and word out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. There's basically six kind of elements in that answer. The first is that Jesus Christ is gathering his church uh, from vastly places, but he's the builder of the church. And if you would turn to Matthew chapter 16, where we have this uh, truth clearly stated. In Matthew 16, it's the um, place where Jesus gets the confession out of Peter. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. So when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. 
And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we have some of the other elements there. The, the church's foundation on, founded on this confession. The confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, it's founded on Peter, not him alone, but with the other apostles. But the key thing from that text is Jesus is saying, I will build my church. We have to know that he's the one that is putting it all together. He's the one building it. And just as he is the one building, we'll see in a minute, he's the one that will keep it. So it's Christ that builds his church. We, he may give us jobs to do. He may give us callings for us to serve him in that work, but he's the author and we have to understand that. Uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22. Here we have the reminder of this foundation on what does Jesus build his church. So Ephesians chapter 2, 19, and we have the image of the church being the temple of God and the household of God here in this context. But verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The church is built by Christ. It's founded on the truth of his word the building blocks, and he puts us together. He joins us together in him with one another in this glorious body of the church. And it's a wonderful, important thing for us to appreciate. Uh, what does the son do for his church? He gathers it, he defends it, and he preserves it. There are many times in the history of the church, and maybe in our own day, we look at the condition of the church and think, it's a mess. How will it ever survive if persecution uh, comes on apace in our, even in our own country? How will the church survive? Well, we need to remember it's Jesus who gathers his church. He defends it and he preserves it. He will make sure the church will endure. It will endure until the end. Uh, the means that he uses to gather, defend, and preserve his church is his spirit and his word, the work of the Holy Spirit, and convicting people of sin and drawing them to Christ. The word of God is the spirit helps us understand it. It's that which he uses to build up his people and defend his people. And where is he gathering these people from? It's from the whole human race. When we go to the book of Revelation and we read about the worship in the presence of God uh, and, and the worship of Christ, uh, there's a portion in, Roman, in Revelation 5. You are worthy, that's Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and your blood, with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The church 
isn't just us here. And it's not just us in America. The church is people that Christ gathers from every language, people, nation, and tongue. And we have to embrace that and appreciate what a wonder that is. When, if, you've, if you travel widely, or if you, especially if you've traveled abroad and you're a Christian and you encounter someone else, you see them reading a Bible and you know they're a Christian, and maybe you can't even put two words together in each other's languages, but you can say the name Jesus, and you have an immediate connection with them because there's your unity. There's your bond. And people, Jesus is gathering his people from every language, people, nation, and tongue to be a part of his glorious body. And it's a wonderful day when we're all gathered together in rejoicing in Jesus' name. A couple qualities of this church. If it, uh, I meant to tell you, kind of stay in Ephesians. Hopefully you're still there. But because we're going to go back and forth to Ephesians a couple different times. If you uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Ephesians 1, verse 10. The purpose of God is to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Uh, It's God who calls us. He chooses us. He sets his affection upon us. Uh, We're chosen to everlasting life. And we're not only chosen by the Lord, but we among we between us in the church, they, they agree in the true faith. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father over all. And you might say, well, no, there's different opinions on baptism. But no, there is only one baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's it. There's one father. Uh, there's there's just one bond uh, that we have. And it's in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have this this connection, this communion. Uh, What is your hope? It's that you are a living member of it and that you will be a living member of it forever. The assurance of salvation is such a great hope and help to us in persevering. You know, the great comment of David in Psalm 23 Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Your hope is that you're a living member of this body, and you will forever be a living member of this body. Uh, Jesus, when he's giving the promises of himself as the good shepherd, and he tells us the good shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him. And he, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The church is a wonderful and glorious body of Christ in this world. And 
to just follow up what this answer says, thinking back on the attributes of the church, the church is we confess one, one church. Yes, we exist in different denominations and we meet in different buildings, but there's one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not many. There's one. Uh, it's the universal church. That's what it means by a Catholic church, uh, that we're gathered as one in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that bond uh, among us. It's a holy church. That is, the, the church is designed to be those who are purified by Christ and living a godly life. Um, if you're in Ephesians, look at Ephesians 5, 26. There we have the comment about Jesus loving his bride. And he gives himself for her in verse 26 to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So we have Jesus is purifying us. That's why Paul calls the church when he writes letters to them to the saints, those who have been set apart by Christ. They're not perfect, but they're set apart to be gods in Christ. One holy Catholic, it's a universal church. It's apostolic, not in a physical connection, but in the spiritual connection with the a foundation built on the word of the apostles and the prophets. That's on which we're built. All of these attributes of the church bind us together, uh, glue us together as we're one people of God. Just a few other thoughts. The church is also in our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, referred to as the invisible church and the visible church. The visible church is those who are gathered together and have their names put on the roll of the church. Um, but we know that not everybody who sits in a church building on this day around the world are part of the invisible church, those who are truly regener regenerate. And the invisible church reflects not only those who are uh, truly God's children here and now, but the church that's been gathered for all ages. We're connected to them. Uh, there's a wonderful bond. We're not only connected to the people here, but we're connected to this church of all ages. They're part of us. We're part of them. And we'll be with them forever. There's one other thought I wanted to give to you, and that is the thought of the church as an army. Uh, turn to Ephesians 6, verse 10. We are involved, involved in a battle, in a conflict in this world. Not with physical weapons, but with the spiritual weapons of warfare, arguments to pull down the strongholds of unbelief. In Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're involved in a battle, and that we're, as a church on earth, we're the church militant. That is, we're the church who are involved in defending the honor of God and extending the honor of God, and we're in a battle to do that here on this earth. The contrast is between the church militant 
here on this earth and the church triumphant in glory. When someone leaves here and goes to be with the Lord, they're not gone. They're not lost. But they've been transferred, just as you may move from one church to another and there's a transfer of membership. When someone leaves our presence, again, they're not gone. They've simply been transferred to the church triumphant. In fact, in our the minutes of our uh, elders, when we um, write down the different actions we take, once, when one of our members passes away, we'll put the note in our minutes that this, so, this, this person has been transferred to the church triumphant. What a glorious truth. When they're not gone, they're gone from us, they're gone from our presence, but they're not gone and they're not lost. They've just changed their membership. They're no longer in the battle here on this earth. They've achieved the victory with the Lord. They are still a member of the church, but they are a member of the church triumphant. And we rejoice in that wonderful truth. And that is our hope as well. That one day in God's timing, in God's good pleasure, we will be trans- our membership will be transferred to the church triumphant. Well, to continue on, question 55 asks the question, what is the communion of the saints? That what is the church? The church is a communion. It's the word that sometimes you hear, see transliterated koinonia. It's the idea that we have communion with one another. There's a bond we have with one another. There are two elements of that bond or two implications of that. The first is that there's a bond of, in communion with Christ and with one another. We have a bond with Jesus Christ if we're a part of the church. And we also have a bond with one another. Uh, why is it that you take the Lord's Supper here with the rest, with the rest of the God's people? It's because you, you have communion not only with Christ, but with one another. Two things you need to keep in mind when you come to the Lord's table. One is, of course, the, the importance of the emblems, what they mean, what they signify, that they point us to Christ crucified, our Savior and our Lord. But, they, but the Lord's Supper also, we take it together because we have communion with one another. When you read 1 Corinthians 11 and you read of Paul's rebuke of the church in Corinth, what the problem was, some were taking the Lord's Supper without waiting on anybody else. And Paul says that by doing that, they were sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Of course, not his personal body and blood, but you, the church. They were sinning against the church. They were sinning against Christ communing with his church. And this bond and communion that we have with one another is so significant. And the Lord's Supper is a picture of that. And the second thing that's brought out in that question and answer is, and because we have communion with one another, one of the things we need to be sure to do is to serve one another. We need to be reaching out and concerned for one another and caring for one another and 
and uh, reaching out to them and helping them. And it's going to be different for every person and, and according to our ability. And unfortunately, life is so hard sometimes, you know, it's so busy. But if we're bound together and we have this communion, we need to care for one another. Pray for one another, help one another, serve one another. Later on, go read 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about the church as a body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the foot, well, I don't need you. They're all part, they're all all an essential part of the body of Christ. And we need to appreciate that, communion. The last question, 56, is uh, what is the church? The church is a gathering of forgiven people. Not perfect people, but forgiven people. If you are looking for a perf- the perfect church, this isn't it. Um, we're not perfect, but by God's grace, we are forgiven. What is the church? The church is the gathering of forgiven people. And there's some wonderful things told to us about forgiveness here. Of course, forgiveness is based on Christ's satisfaction. It's in him that we have redemption uh, through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of God's grace. We receive forgiveness only completely through the blood of Christ, through his satisfaction. God will no longer remember our sins. Isn't that an amazing thing? I bet you remember your sins. I bet other people remember your sins, but the one, the most important person is God and he won't remember your sins. What a comfort that is. What a help that is. He will not also remember your sinful nature. You and I will struggle with that all our lives. But God is not going to hold that over our head. He will take our sins, and as far as east is from west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. God will, forgiving you, impute Christ's righteousness to you. In that wonderful verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the glorious and wonderful thing about forgiveness. It's not just wiping the slate clean, but it's clothing us with the righteousness of Christ. We have a very um, famous story in our OPC history about this. Um, One of our, the pioneer of our denomination, a great Presbyterian churchman and and theologian, J. Gresham Machen, uh, as he was about to die on New Year's Day in 1937 in a hospital in the Dakotas all alone, um, he sent a telegram to his friend and colleague at Westminster Seminary, John Murray. And in, in the telegram were these words. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. 
Now, some of you may not even be familiar with what the act of obedience of Christ is. But I doubt that any of us here would think that our final words we would say would be to put that down in a telegram to somebody. The act of obedience of Christ is his perfect life that he lived on our behalf. His passive obedience is his willingness to die and surrender himself for the punishment of our sins to redeem us. And what the hope of Machen and and all believers is that on the day of their death, when they enter the presence of God, they do so not in their righteousness, not still accountable for sin that they've committed in their life, but they have been clothed with the robes of Christ's righteousness. Their sin is imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to them so that when the Father looks at at us, he doesn't see us. He sees his Son and he welcomes us into glory. This is what forgiveness is all about. Our condemnation is removed. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're a gathering of not perfect people, but we're, by God's grace, we're a gathering of, of forgiven sinners. And as you and I reflect on the church, and there are many more thoughts you could think of and come to mind, you and I need to appreciate the wonder of what God is doing, what Christ is doing, that he is building his church. What an amazing thing that he would do that. And he would take people of all kinds, from all walks of life, different races, different, he brings all together into his church. But then the other thing you need to be amazed at is the amazing wonder that you or that me are a part of that. What an amazing thing. That God would set his affection upon you. That he would set his affection upon me. That's a wonder. That's an amazing thing. But he does it out of his abundant love and grace and mercy. So may you rest in the work that God is doing in our lives together and in your life in particular and experience the hope and the um, strength of looking to glory uh, in the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the abundant love and mercy you have poured out in our lives. Thank you for building your church. And Lord, we know that your church, even this church, has many struggles and failings and challenges. And yet you have brought each one here. Lord, everyone that's here today has come because by your hand bringing them here. Thank you for the the, the wonderful blessing that is. Thank you for the wonderful work you're doing. We thank you for the wonderful grace and mercy you have uh, poured out in our lives. May you, O Lord, be glorified and honored in this, this great work. And we pray that Christ would be exalted above all things. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.